Ian Nathan of Empire Magazine calls this film a placid, poignant, well-kept secret of a movie. Roger Ebert calls it a rare and subtle bird that finds its tone and stays with it. And Letterboxd user Jake Peralta asks, what if we kissed during Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of being there. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. <laughs> okay. I like to podcast. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I hope that our uh, listeners like to listen, because we're going to be doing some listening. Yeah. Hey, welcome. It's Ruined Childhood. We're doing it again. This is our yeah. our first time uh, back on kind of a regular schedule. We kind of banked a bunch uh, earlier because Dan had uh, a little bit of extra time uh, and more flexibility. And now we're back on our bullshit. And uh, yeah, so yeah. it's it's kind of exciting because we haven't sat down and, and done this in a few yeah, weeks. And, and it kind of felt right to do something where it would be nice to have a little bit of extra time. And being there, uh, at least for me, you know, having a lot of extra time was great because I really got into watching a lot of Peter Sellers movies that I either haven't seen in a long time or have never seen. And Dan, did you know that today, the day that we're recording this, would be his 96th birthday? You know, I did not catch that. No, wow. That is, I so today is stumbled it's across September that 8th. On the, uh, on the old social meds. And I was like, wait a second, what? Okay. You know, this, this has a, this happens. So yeah. th- I don't, I don't think we always make note of it, but like this happens with us where we don't we don't plan this out we're not like oh we're gonna celebrate peter seller's birthday by doing being there it's like we'll pick a movie and then and we'll do it and then you will find out oh wow we recorded this on their birthday or it's releasing on their birthday or something strange like that pure coincidence just by chance if you will Oh, yeah. Tip of the hat. Uh, very nice, nicely, nicely done oh, there. Oh, thank you. Um, and if by chance, chance you are hey. a new listener <laughs> to uh, to Ruined Childhoods, um, Vilcom and Bienvenue, welcome, come on in. Uh, and we are, uh, we're here to talk about, not just talk about movies, but we are talking about uh, the the ongoing, the extended life of of movies and franchises and characters and stories because that that seems to be kind of the way of the entertainment business these these days yeah um you know we don't you you not that there are not original films out there but they we don't see them as much in wide release or or any theatrical release here's the thing is that studios know that they can make sure money on something that's you know tried and tested and that's going to be maybe a remake or a sequel part of a franchise and it's true 
But there are there are so many movies that are original stories. We just maybe aren't seeing them being as widely publicized. Uh, there's a lot of really awesome stuff out there. On our last episode, or maybe a couple ago, we talked about Annette. That is a truly unique movie that experience that uh, I highly encourage people to check out on Amazon Prime. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of original stories being told and, um, you know, people it would have be to nice recognize to see that them. too, but yeah, they're not getting the attention that they're not, the, the they're not out there. Get. Like, to, I mean, to put it in perspective, like Rain Man was the number one movie of 1988 and not that Rain Man is like the most, you know, groundbreaking original film ever. But when we look at box office grosses, the the top three are going to look something like an Avengers, a Fast and a Furious and... I I don't... Another Avengers, something... another Or another Fast and the Furious. Another Marvel, another Fast and Furious. Um, And, you know, and there are other things being done as well. I haven't seen it, but I heard that the, like, remade, reimagined Invisible Man was was very good yeah with uh elizabeth moss and um there there are a lot of other really really well done remakes sequels prequels they're they're the 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 good the bad and the ugly so um, if you want to hear our thoughts about the good the bad the ugly listen to that episode that we did I had mentioned this earlier to you, but I have to just kind of uh, share before we get into it that it was very it it was interesting because uh, so my my day job is as a as a teacher. And, um, you know, we have these we have staff meetings and they're online these days. And there's always a slideshow that goes along with it. And our principal always has the first slide has some type of prompt. And especially now that we're on Teams doing our our meetings, um, which is it's like Zoom uh, for those who, who aren't familiar with it. Uh, and so there's always a question and everyone's supposed to pop their answer into the chat. And it might be like, where's a place in the world you've never been that you would love to go? Or, you know, what would you do if you found a million dollars or something like that? And today's question. Now, the question first would have caught my eye and had me say, and not everybody oh, yeah. on this on the staff is aware of this podcast uh there are definitely some people we definitely do have some listeners so Hi. uh yes hello greetings fellow wildcats uh <laughs> and uh not a movie we've covered yet <laughs> right although when you say wildcats it just makes me think of speed oh right 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 see i thought you i thought you're thinking of wildcats goldie hawn no okay. but we well, should actually talk about that. so coming back to speed so the question today was, which sequel do you wish could be erased from existence? And I I understand the question, but what really got my attention and, and had me respond first, not answering the question, was that the accompanying image was the 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 poster art for Caddyshack 2. How dare they? There were only two of us that commented on it, but my comment was was like back off Caddyshack 2 and and somebody else was like, was like definitely not getting rid of Caddyshack 2. Yeah. So <laughs> so what did you especially say? if you're the if you're the Fonzanoon that backed me up, thank you. Uh, uh Not a Fonzanoon. So people said 
No, not if not if I mean Fonzanoon in in a good way. Okay. So yeah, the, the Speed Two was the first one mentioned in there. There were there were definitely people who um who who wrote like the Star Wars prequels, mm. and I fought the urge to point out that like uh, those are not sequels; those are prequels. Right, right, right. You know, but I guess if you think about it, episodes two and three at least are, are sequels. They are sequels to, to a prequel, right? Yes, exactly. So anyway, I did. I I held. I was holding back a lot. Like I at some point, I like had a whole list, and then realized the meeting was half over, and I was like, I think I kind of missed the boat on posting this. But yeah, uh, I think that I would probably. Ah, that's see, I'm I'm trying to think of what I would say, and it's interesting that you say clearly prequel is not an option, but. My mind first went to Dumb and Dumber, which had both a prequel and a sequel. So, uh, but I don't know if that would be my answer. I think that I'd have to sit with that one for a while. There's just so many movies out there with sequels. Yeah, I was trying to think of something where like the sequel just like really just like brought down the the property value of the franchise. So yeah. To speak. yeah. I, which I which is I put Batman and Robin because that effectively like killed the franchise. Right. For, Maybe Indiana uh, Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I kind of want to go back into the chat from that meeting oh. and write that because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a, that was, the, that was pretty shitty. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I just, I thought it was relevant to bring up. And also it's like when I log into a staff meeting and the first thing I see is the, is like uh, the poster image from Caddyshack 2 I, I had a moment as I was telling John earlier, I, I said, I really for a moment thought I was hallucinating or, or, I that's, thought that, or I that you were being wrong punked, thing. like somebody was or, like <laughs> listened to the podcast and called you out or something. No, that would have been great if they did that, because then I could say, well, obviously you didn't pay attention to how we talked about liking Caddyshack 2. So. Right. No, I mean, calling you out for liking Caddyshack 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, that that's recognition. But anyway, <laughs> look, while Caddyshack 2 may be a guilty pleasure, a pure pleasure with no guilt whatsoever is being there. Yeah. Dan, had you seen being there before? Yes. And yes. it's been a while. The first time I saw it might have been I know that I kind of went I think after I saw Dr. Strangelove and oh, okay. Lolita I uh because that was when I was like watching any in high school when I got into Kubrick and I was watching any Kubrick film I could get my hands on and I was really like wow in these two movies Peter Sellers gives four totally different performances yeah and I I tried to dig into the rest of, of Peter Sellers. Right. And, you know, if you're looking if you're looking at the Peter Sellers filmography and you're trying to like, what am I going to do? What am I going to watch? Well, being there, I mean, aside from being his last film is. Was I it think, his look, last film? I, be, I mean, he. I, I know he died, he died right after, but. There uh, might. Oh, OK, no, no. I think there was a Pink Panther movie that came out, but it was compiled of like out. It was a Pink Panther movie where they like hobbled a story together. Oh, using really? Like outtakes. Oh, my yeah. goodness. It's, uh, I, I'm, I, there's I, the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. Oh, that came out okay. in 1980. <laughs> oh, OK. All right. So, yes. So uh, another Peter Sellers film that uh, should probably not be watched. Um, I mean, or Helen Mirren said Caesar is in it. Well, Helen Mirren. Yeah, that would have been Helen Mirren's also in Caligula. Like, I know. (laughs) 
Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, Caligula is, uh, Caligula is a tremendous and has like just the most impeccable cast. It's like the largest collection of British actors in one film before the Harry yeah. Potter series began. Right. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, Peter Sellers, I definitely was going into a bit of a, uh, a Peter Sellers hole. I watched Dr. Strangelove, which I hadn't seen in a very, very long time. And what's really interesting is I didn't find it as enjoyable as I remembered it. And uh, I kind of got a little weird about it being called Dr. Strangelove. I know the title's much longer than that, but it's like, uh, I feel like this is really, you know kissing Peter Sellers ass a lot because I know that he was given just so much freedom to kind of be a goof and a, and a weirdo. And uh, that character, I don't know. It didn't feel like the, a character that would have been the uh, the titular character, if you will. Uh, He comes in the third. act. Yeah. I mean, Peter Sellers is of course all over that movie because he plays three different characters. Uh, If anything, I feel like it would be the Lieutenant's name or whoever the guy is who kind of goes mad to begin with. And, you know, I don't know. Jack, Jack, Jack D Ripper. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I don't know. I would, I mean, it's adapted from a novel called red alert. Yeah. Which I suppose, I mean, yeah, I, that which kind of does seem like kind of a basic, very basic title. Do you think it should have just been called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb? Maybe. I mean, that was during a time when there were crazy long titles like that. Um, yeah. I mean, considering that was also just part of the title. But Dr. Strangelove, yeah. I mean, has a has a, a awesome, memorable ring to it. But for it to be named for that character seemed a little odd for me. But anyway... All I'm saying is I appreciated his performances, but I feel like they made me like the movie less than if he were maybe just two of the characters. I don't know. Uh, And then I watched the first two Pink Panther movies and uh, it's... It's so odd and there's it's definitely this time and I know that you know a lot of it is like Robert Evans and just kind of being like, all right, this is Peter Sellers and he's going to do this Peter Sellers thing and everybody just make room and it's the Peter Sellers show and, you know, good luck getting the line in because he's just going to do what he's going to do. And uh, yeah, he's he's funny and it, it's it's bizarre because at the end of the first one, um, spoiler alert, he gets sent to prison because it is believed that he is this jewel thief. Um, and then all of a sudden he's, he's back and he's got a completely different thing going on. Um, I don't know. So you, did you start with a shot in the dark? Oh no, I just started with the pink Panther. Oh, okay. Which I'm not sure which one came first, but I, I thought, that, I think a shot in the dark might've been the, the first oh, was one. It? Because yeah, in the I mean, first, he's, in the, in the pink Panther, that one was, uh, Clouseau was kind of less important to the the whole thing. And then it seemed like he kind of made his way into being kind of the, the star of the whole thing. Oh, you know what? I think if I'm if I'm correct, the Pink Panther actually came first and then it was a shot in the dark. 
Um, I'm kind of going through his thing right now. And yeah, we, Shot I, in the Dark came out in eighty in sixty four. Sixty four, yeah. So and he had done so so many movies, but because there's Curse of the there, Pink I think Panther. the Return of the Pink Panther is the uh, or the Pink Panther Strikes Again. I don't know. There's just yeah. like there's so many of them. I think Curse of the Pink Panther might have been the one that came out in like eighty three or something. Okay, that was just like assembled footage from so the other strange. ones and. And then there was Son of the Pink Panther with R- Roberto Benini. R- Roberto Bernini, that's right. Yes. Um, so uh, why don't we talk a little bit? And, and by the way, listen to our episode about the party. And I and I feel like I the party is going to come up a little bit, um, just in the sense of like where Peter Sellers was as a person, which. First and foremost, Peter Sellers was not a good person. He was an abusive uh, partner and father and just not a great dude, um, but certainly talented. He was looking out for number one and yeah. nobody else. Number one on the call sheet. Which, yeah. by the way, if if um, if yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but there was an HBO movie about the life of Peter Sellers yeah. that starred Jeffrey Rush as Peter Sellers, and Jeffrey Rush is amazing as Peter Sellers, um, and it's really worth checking out. Yeah, I wanted to watch that in preparation for this. I just couldn't find it. Um, yeah, yeah and, hard to find. Yeah, so you know, Peter Sellers was definitely into like Eastern philosophies. And and I think that that really informed his character for the party, which as we discussed on that episode was definitely more satirical and more, more of a political commentary than one might give it credit for on the surface, because it's hard to see past him in brownface. And that it makes a lot of sense that he would eventually come to do being there with Hal Ashby, who is a total hippie, um, who, you know, put inserts politics into a lot of his movies in one way or another. And his his thoughts about the military, such as in Harold and Maude, and you know, being there, of course, is just like And coming home is, is as everywhere. well. Another coming Hal home. Ashby uh right. more serious um about about the Vietnam War. Also, Jerzy Kaczynski, the author of the novel and and co-writer of the screenplay, also very politically outspoken. So, Jerzy Kaczynski, uh, I watched a few things that are on the Criterion Blu-ray for being there. And first, I watched his appearance on The Dick Cavett Show. And so, so Jerzy Kaczynski was, uh, he's of Polish descent. He, I... Escaped. He's uh, Jewish. Was Jewish. Uh, he escaped from or hid from the the Nazis with a Catholic family, and he was mute from the ages of like nine to sixteen. And uh, uh, he says that there was some sort of accident, and it was an accident that kind of snapped him out of it. And but there's a lot about him that seems like he's not completely forthright. So he died because he he killed himself, and this was around a time where it was coming out uh, a lot of very convincing evidence that he had plagiarized a lot of his works, and such was the case with being there, which was a very short novel. But there was a Polish novel that I read a little bit about on Wikipedia that 
it didn't seem to me to be completely similar to being there, but I could see where it was kind of getting some of the themes from. And yeah. Jersey Kaczynski had written a few different versions of a screenplay for being there once uh, it was actually in motion. It had taken a few years. Peter Sellers read the book when it came out in like 1970 and was like, I want to do this. I want to be in a movie. I want to be Chance the Gardener. And uh, that's what I, you know, we've got to get this made. And ultimately what ended up happening was the producer had met Jersey Kaczynski and uh, they actually met at uh, Sharon Tate's funeral and uh, they had kind of formed a bit of a relationship. They were both buddies with Roman Polanski, another historically bad dude. Um, and at a certain point, uh, Jersey Kaczynski had said that this one, I think like South African billionaire told him like, I'm going to fund this movie to be made and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, the, the producer of the movie, whose uh, name I'm forgetting right now, but I'm sure it's Andrew Bronsberg. I think this was from the making of being there feature on it. Oh, did you, did you watch that? I watched part of that oh, well, yeah. because I watched it on, I'll give a shout out to the Criterion channel, yeah. um, oh, which not only had... has the movie, but you can stream a lot of the features as, as yeah. well. So I, I did watch uh, some of that documentary. Yeah, it's, which yeah, is crazy fascinating, story. which is so fascinating. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so then he was just like, don't do that. We're going to get this made. They ended up getting it going. Jersey had written a bunch of screenplays for it. And Hal Ashby and everyone was just like, these are, we cannot do this. These are no good. And so then um, Bob Jones, who uh, was... Not 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 the bad guy from RoboCop. Not the bad guy oh, that's from Dick RoboCop. Jones. Sorry, that's yeah, Dick Jones. So, but it's still not the bad guy from RoboCop. Sorry. Uh, he did a version of the screenplay. He had been an editor for Hal Ashby in the past and had written some stuff. And... Uh, or I think he actually won an Oscar for screenwriting and he did a rewrite, like a complete rewrite. And that's essentially this, the screenplay that they shot. And after the film was made, Jersey Kaczynski was like, it's so amazing. It's so amazing, but demanded that he get all screenwriting credit. And it was like disputed in arbitration at the, at the writer's guild. And they favored, you know, for Jersey and, uh, so Bob Jones doesn't get the credit that he so greatly deserves for essentially being the sole writer of that screenplay or adapter. Taking what, taking what, cause like taking what Kaczynski had written in his drafts and his novels and actually making it work yeah. as, a, as yeah. a script. And, and a lot of the critics say like this adaptation is better than the book and, uh, from what I hear about the book, which I hear it's a very quick read, first of all, so I should probably give it a read, but uh, it's just a way more complete story. And Peter Sellers, who was the clear choice, you know, who had been wanting to play this character um, for so long, just, you know, really nailed this character of Chance, which I should probably do a synopsis, huh? Yeah, but before you do that, it is important to note while we're talking about this that Peter Sellers' career was not exactly... Peter Sellers was not in high demand. No. By the time this movie was made. So it was not a shoe-in. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a, a Tom Hanks or a jo- George Clooney uh, bringing something in and being able to pretty much do whatever they want. Like, it took him 
almost 10 years yeah. to get this made. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So Peter, Peter Sellers. So really like Hal Ashby and, and Peter Sellers wanted Hal Ashby to direct it. Uh huh. Probably because Hal Ashby like wouldn't give a shit about it would cast Peter Sellers and wouldn't like the studio would probably say like no Robert Redford we want Robert yeah. Redford for this oh god that would have been awful <laughs> yeah I yeah. love Robert Redford but not right for this character no not right for this character so anyway just important to note that that Peter Sellers reach you know like uh, we said he he passed away I think in 1980. Um, and this is this is really the tail end of his career. And through most of the 70s, he really wasn't in high demand. I think outside of the Pink Panther movies, he really didn't no, do he much was, of note. Uh, you know, notoriously hard to work with. Uh, I'm sure that Robert, Evan, Robert Evans uh, maybe had a better time working with him because they were best buds. But uh, it seems like everyone else really hated working with him. Except for on this film, I guess he was extremely easy to work with and a lot of fun, although he stayed in character most of the time, which is probably why he was easy to work with is because he probably didn't do much (laughs) talking on set. All right. You ready to synopse? Go for it. Chance is a neurodiverse gardener in his 50s whose life gets turned upside down after his employer and caretaker dies of old age. Left with no money, friends, identity, or place to live, Chance wanders the streets that he has only ever seen on television. But Chance's luck quickly changes when he's hit by a car owned by Ben Rand, a billionaire and influential Washington, D.C. socialite. Ben's wife, Eve, who was in the car at the time of the accident, invites Chance to see the doctor at their house who tends to the very ill Ben Rand in order to avoid getting sued. As Chance and Eve get to know one another in the car, Chance remains quiet and seemingly contemplative, and she mistakes him as saying his name as Chauncey Gardner, when he actually says Chance, the gardener. At the Rand estate, Chance, now Chauncey, meets Ben Rand, who is very taken with Chauncey. Everyone mistakes Chauncey's simplistic views on gardening and watching television as wide metaphor, though Ben's doctor suspects that something is amiss. Before long, Ben invites Chauncey to join him in a chat with the president, who also mistakes Chauncey's thoughts on gardening as a brilliant metaphor for the economy, going as far as to quote Chauncey in a televised speech. This gets the country buzzing about this new mysterious financial advisor. The financial editor for the Washington Post demands to get information on him, but there seems to be no paper trail of his background. Chauncey also guests on a nighttime talk show and continues to accidentally fool the world of his genius. But the one most taken by him is Eve Rand, who has been given her husband's blessing to pursue Chauncey romantically. The president, on the other hand, suspects that Chauncey's trying to undermine his financial plan, but is also unable to find background on him. The FBI and CIA both come up short, but also both claim that if any agency could erase his past, it would be their agency. After the death of Ben Rand, just about everyone attends his funeral. As he's being eulogized by the president, Ben's pallbearers determine that the only wise move for the future of the presidency is to push for his replacement to be Chauncey Gardner. So, as we said, Peter Sellers plays Chance or Chauncey. Shirley MacLaine is Eve, and she is magnificent. Uh, some of the like subtle reactions and responses that she has are just so good. And we've, you know, sung her praises before for the apartment. She's Mm-hmm. Magnificent. Uh, Melvin Douglas in his Oscar winning performance as Ben Rand. He's amazing. Uh, Jack Warden is the president. 
And uh, yeah, that's kind of, uh, we have Ruth Attaway as Louise, who is the uh, the housekeeper for Chance's original home. And, yeah. and she kind of, uh, she kind of rev- like, you learn a, a lot about, you, there's a lot that, that you learn from Louise. Um, oh, other cast members to, to point out, even though, uh, you know, they might not have starring roles, but just actors that we've seen yeah. else elsewhere. Uh, Fran Brill yes. plays one of the lawyers working with the estate of the, the owner of the home where where chance lived home of and and of and and i don't know about you john but as soon as she came on screen i was like she's from what about bob what about like, bob? she's the the doctor at the uh at the isn't she the doctor at the uh or is she is she his uh, uh richard dreyfus's sister in it he, uh, the sister oh she's the yeah i'm like i knew i recognized her i, I yeah. was like what about bob? yeah and uh, uh she was also in midnight run yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, uh, anyone who watched the show Benson <laughs> back in the day would recognize, um, I want to say his name is Richard Noble, uh, who played the governor on Benson, plays one of the president's aides in this, like, the oh, okay. president's, like top aide. Because I saw him and I was oh, it's like, it's from Benson. It's <laughs> <Dr>. Benson. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's an awesome cast. Everybody is beyond capable. And oh, really, yeah. just gets what's going on. Um, yeah, it's awesome. And, and the, I feel okay. Melvin Douglas for sure deserved his Academy Award, and he really, really, really sells the fact that he, in his heart, believes that Chauncey is a brilliant man. And uh, you know, this is a man who is on his deathbed. He is moments away from dying at any given time and you know chance is the only person that ever kind of looks at him with respect and dignity and makes him feel comfortable with with dying and it's really lovely and uh their relationship is really fantastic i mean he you know wants chance to or chauncey to take over his house and wife and everything and money it's uh that's huge yeah but he's also like he's on and you don't see a lot i feel like in movies like this with roles like this you see a lot of assistants and in aides kind of grubbing and trying to screw each other out of out of yeah. favoritism and inheritance and you don't see that here even the doctor who's yeah. who's on to chance or like not on to chance because chance isn't doing this guy is just like this guy's not telling a single lie this guy does not have a, a false bone in his body chance right and but even the doctor who is who suspects that something isn't as it seems he doesn't he doesn't really say anything about it until after ben dies yeah so he gets he you know tries to figure out who this guy is and he goes through his stuff to try to get information for secret service or the fbi or whomever and ends up following up on a lead because chauncey mentions his thomas franklin his uh, the attorney who comes to the the house where chauncey or or where chance lived and who uh, was the first person to kind of 
wonder like what is the deal with this guy there's no record of this person at all and uh, when thomas's name is mentioned to the doctor he tracks him down and they talk and then at towards the end uh robert the doctor says calls him chance and says and you're really a gardener aren't you and he says yes yes i am and he's like a garden needs to grow strong or whatever he always says and uh but you know he, he knows that it's who it doesn't matter because all that matters is that he has made ben feel comfortable he is making eve happy he can tell that he really loves eve despite his his setbacks you know and a lot of people liken this movie to Forrest Gump and to quote Forrest Gump you know or to paraphrase him Chauncey is not a smart man but he knows what love is right yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's interesting like I, I I I get the it's like I kind of get the comparisons I kind of see where there, I, there's that yeah I I see it but it's kind of, it's very it's a very surface comparison um, being there is, it, it, it's, it's very like no frills. Like, yeah, it's, uh, it's so, it's so beautiful in the way that it's shot in the way. And actually I thought that the, the title being there was really appropriate because that's kind of all the camera has to do Yeah, is just be there. And, and it's so well, pl- I mean, it's shot so well that, um, and, uh, Caleb Deschanel is the, uh, cinematographer. Um, and, you know, and he even talks about like, you know, kind of letting action happen within the frame. Right. But it, it that's what I really enjoy about this movie is that it's not that there's no, dire- it's not like there's no direction and nothing, but it's, it's just, it's just the right amount everywhere. Yes. It's just the right amount, the music. And it's so like, there was one, there was one scene where the music was so powerful and it's, he's is it talking the basketball to- Jones part when they're arriving at the estate um i don't think so no <laughs> basketball jones do you not uh-huh. remember that it's when uh eve and, and chance are first arriving at the estate and he turns the tv on to it's the cheech and chong song basketball jones oh oh yeah. okay no 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 i'm thinking of the music uh so there's when he's talking to he's talking to ben and he has these moments, and this is something that's so nice because he's really, he's just very honest. And he doesn't often talk about his feelings, but he says, I'm sorry you're so sick, Ben. Yeah, let's listen to that moment. You don't play games with words to protect yourself. No, you're direct. <laughs> you remember what I was talking to you about last night? No, Ben. Oh, sure you do. My plan for financial assistance to businessmen. Well, I think you're just the man to take charge of an institution like that. Uh I understand, Ben. Uh, And Chauncey, I know you're not a man to act on the spur of the moment. So don't feel that you have to rush into a decision. Thank you, Ben. Now, Chauncey, I'm afraid I must excuse myself. I'm awfully tired. 
impresarios of sick men. That's kind of the like one of the few times where he actually expresses a unique thought. Um, yeah, a unique thought that's not, yeah, that's not prompted. Yeah. Because usually even what he says about gardening, it's prompted because whenever anyone asks him a question, that's basically what he knows. Yeah, but I don't think that even that is unique thoughts. I think that's just him going into his well of knowledge and that's all he's got and that's all he's going to give you. But sorry you're so sick is, you know, really something else. It's a lot more genuine. And, um, you know, is in you, you referred to him, uh, you know, in the synopsis as neurodiverse, which, uh, you know, appropriately. Well, <laughs> um, say what you're going to say and then I want to come back to that. Yeah. No, no, no. But and because it's not defined, there's no there's no explanation. And back when this movie came out, they would just say, oh, you know, he's he's simple. He's simple right. minded, which now we look at it and, you know, especially depending on your your familiarity, um, you know, with with different types of neurodiversity, you're looking at it and saying like, oh, maybe he has Asperger's or Maybe I mean it's not it's not important, but yeah. it is important to recognize that pe- that many people, um, especially people on the autism spectrum, expressing an like just an unprompted emotional i like idea like that is you know it's not it's not happening every day typically right um so it's. So I think it makes it really, it makes it powerful. And the music is just like, when I mean just like just enough, not too much. Yes. It's like emotionally, because it's kind of, it's it's a little mournful, but it's not really sad. It's, right. and it's simple. It's just a piano. And, but it, it's simple and powerful, like Chauncey. Yeah. Uh, sorry, just to go back to, you know, him being neurodiverse. And, and, and I wrote that, that I wrote that down and I was like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like these days we all have a tendency to try to diagnose everybody and uh, try to figure out what it is. And I think that this movie, what, one of the things that it does really well is it gets you thinking because it doesn't give you everything. So it makes you theorize. It makes you wonder what happened to him or what's going on. I mean, I was thinking like, it seems like he had some sort of childhood trauma that, you know, prevents him from forming big emotions or or learning new things. It's like he has his one thing and that's it. That, but that's the the brilliance of this movie is that it's giving the audience a lot of opportunities to participate. And I think that the ending is one of the biggest moments in cinema that like just is kind of designed to just get you to theorize. But like they also give you enough like i'm gonna keep coming back to this like just the levels of everything is just right because they give you enough to theorize and you get enough so and actually going back to his childhood i think Uh that's kind of one of the biggest mysteries but there are some some clues in there and as i was watching it i i was wondering and i thought to myself i said was was 
Chauncey or Chance, the son of right. the guy who owned the house, because he says he's always been in that house. He's never left. Well, he says he's he there ever the since garden. he can remember. Actually, I'm just going to play that moment really mm-hmm. quick. Yeah. Just how long have you been living here, Mr. Chance? Ever since I can remember. Ever since I was a child, I've worked in this garden. I guess I don't need to play the clip because I just said everything that they just said. <laughs> yeah, ever since I was a child, right. I worked in this garden. And yeah, I don't know. It it kind of leaves a little bit, it, a, a lot of mystery, actually. Well, but then, and then, and we really don't get more about it until Louise, much later in the film, sees him on on TV. Sounds as if we need a lot of gardening here. We certainly do. Yes. It's for sure a white man's world in America. It is possible to be flooded in one part and yeah. the other part. I raised dry. that boy since he was the size of a piston. Of the gardener. And I'll say right now he never learned to read and write. No, sir. Had no brains at all. Areas Stuff with rice pudding between the ears. It is the responsibility. Short changed by the Lord and dumb as a jackass. Plant a Look at him now. In the shade of a yes, sir. Wall. All you gotta be is white in America to get whatever you want. Louise, amazing. I want to. We'll we'll come back to the. Um, the racial yes message there because that's this is not the first time right in the movie um but yeah when she says that she raised him and then i was just i was thinking about because i've known of families you know back in the 70s and 80s that had neurodiverse children did not understand what their needs did not understand you know what the options were and basically just kind of like tucked them away and just put, right. you know, in a, in a room. And it, it felt to me like chance that was kind of his experience where, you know, I guess maybe it was his father who had the means to just basically like pay Louise and be like, put him out in the garden. Right. And and of course, like he connects to that. He connects to gardening and there's so much metaphor there. And and you, you mentioned possible childhood trauma. And it, it, you know, it just it brings up the questions of, OK, well, if that was his father, what about his mother? Yeah. You know, did did his mother abandon them? Did she run off? Did she, you know, we know nothing. Right. If. If if the old man isn't his father, then who where who were his parents? How did he come to live in this house? Yeah, and but Dan, as such a small child, isn't it so great that we don't know? It is, it is. Yeah, I would never. I I I know. Like I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, but I don't want to see a prequel that answers all these questions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. And so I'm just gonna do a quick little. <laughs> Spoiler alert. So at the end, at Ben's funeral, Chance walks off and tends to a, a 
like a, a little tree that's about to, that's trying to grow through some some branches and stuff. And then he just kind of walks off on top of the water back toward the house. And this is something that's been uh, up for debate since the day this movie came out. What does that mean? And honestly, uh, so I believe that the uh, official quote from Bob Jones is, he was just too dumb to know that you couldn't. And uh, that was part of that documentary about the making of the movie. And uh, I, you know, totally agree with that. And then also there's such a strong case to give, you know, weight to the religious implications of Jesus walking on water. You know, uh, the the woman's name is Eve. Uh, there's he he's a gardener, you know, Garden of Eden, all that stuff. So it's like there's a lot of religious things uh, to kind of push you in that direction and make you think that way. I don't think that there actually is a religious reason for it. I truly believe that it's kind of like, here are all of these little, you know, snacks for you to munch on to to kind of theorize away. And, uh, you know, it's that kind of movie that just is <laughs> like, it's designed to just make you think. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I have, I just like wrote all these like questions about it and just all the meanings because you know talking about how chance is just he when he's talking about gardening he is literally talking about about gardening if yeah. the roots are strong there will be growth in the spring and it there's and so like what he's saying is actually very i don't want to say shallow because that's an insult but what he means is very much like literally what he's saying, but everybody else assumes there's so much depth to what he's saying. Yeah. And that was, and I kind of drew that comparison at the end yes. to where he's walking on, you know, the water is just like barely, it's like he's walking in a very shallow puddle. Uh, You know, the water barely even impacting his, his shoes, uh, his feet, but then he takes a stick and well, it's his umbrella. Like, put, yeah. Or his umbrellas, right, 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 yeah. and kind of dips it into the water next to him, and I, I felt like it was kind of this, like we see what we want to see, and some things that really aren't, yeah, like some things that are not, you know, some things that are not meant to be deep are taken as deep. Um, I also thought, uh, my my question that I wrote here was, does it mean that it, he uh he doesn't sink into the water because he just doesn't let it phase him because things don't phase him and he just accepts the world as it he just accepts the world as it is so so when he walks and he's kind of like one with nature and also like when he walks on the water is he just kind of able to walk on the water because he's this is the direction i'm walking this is i'm taking step by step i mean i don't like he doesn't have who knows yeah he doesn't have all of the anxieties that we have he doesn't have all the things that weigh us down you know he is just fluttering Mm -hmm. through life and as a white man in america succeeding thriving and uh you know getting everything that some people spend their entire lives trying to get so right and 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 without really trying with that and this this is where i kind of see the forrest gump overlap um how this guy is just he's just kind of going on on instinct and i mean look i just i enjoy forrest gump for what it is but 
like when we talk about having the levels just right and adjusted just right, Forrest Gump turns the volume up on a lot of things. Are you trying to tell and me that he didn't actually teach Elvis how to dance? I, I cannot say this for certain, but... Uh, Dan, the man just really had to pee. Yeah, no, he just, you know, he had a lot of Dr. Peppers. And... <laughs> and and speaking of meeting presidents, I just want to play that clip really quick. I took out uh, a lot of the gaps because they're, it takes its time where they're kind of thinking through what he's saying. But I just want to play it because I love the scene so much. And I want to uh, showcase Jack Warden's amazing performance as the president. Mr. Garner, do you agree with Ben or do you think we can stimulate growth through temporary incentives? As long as the roots are not severed, all is well, and all will be well in the garden. In the garden? Yes. In a garden, growth has its season. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter. And then we get spring and summer again. Spring and summer? Yes. <clears throat> then fall and winter? Yes. I think what our insightful young friend is saying is that we welcome the inevitable seasons of nature, but we're upset by the seasons of our economy. Yes. There will be growth in the spring. Hmm. 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 <laughs> well, Mr. Garner, I must admit that is one of the most refreshing and optimistic statements I've heard in a very, very long time. <laughs> I admire your good, solid sense. That's precisely what we lack on Capitol Hill. <clears throat> it's so good. It really is. And, I, you know, there's so many little things that are subtly repeated, um, like that sense of being, uh, you know, re refreshing, because um, when he first starts to like is staying at the house, there's a scene where uh, I forget if it's Ben or if it's the doctor who says, like, he might be a breath of fresh air. Right here. Let's listen to that, because I I'm going to play this clip. And I want to point out that uh, Shirley MacLaine, uh, Eve, this scene starts off because she's trying to get some fresh air. My God, Eve, you'll freeze. No, I just, I just wanted to get some fresh air. <laughs> How's Mr. Garden? Oh, doesn't seem to be too serious. But it is a rather large contusion, and I'd like to keep an eye on him. So I suggested that he stay here for a couple of days. Here? Mr. Gardner, stay here? Why? Is that necessary? No, not necessary. But, uh, not helpful. <laughs> Don't worry, he might be a breath of fresh air. And what you won't see from just listening to that clip is that right after... That's where Shirley MacLaine's face does all these little subtle movements where you can kind of see her processing this intense man that she met who she's kind of trying to piece together and figure out and clearly has some attraction to, uh, not as much at just that point in the movie, but 
her face just does these amazing little subtle movements. And uh, I have so much respect for her as an actor because of this movie. Not I mean, to say I don't yeah, think she's it, great in everything that she's been in, especially defending your life. Uh, oh, <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> oh man. Talk about like top cameos ever yeah. in film. Um, no, Shirley, I mean, eh, look, look, we could sing Shirley MacLaine's praises all, all day and night. Um, you know, I, I'm going to shout out postcards from the edge. Just, oh, yeah. that's also, that's kind of one that pops into my mind. I love that movie. What I also love about, um, about the screenplay is that he, it, it flips a lot of the, the metaphors, the things that he means literally, like when he, he like he's talk, uh, he's going to go on TV and he's talking to the TV producer and, the dialogue between them is is great, and the producer refers to his down to earth uh, philosophy. and And what I love is that the doctor doesn't say that, thinking like, "Oh, I'm making a pun. I'm being funny." Right. Like he just means it's it's you know. It's and nobody comments earth. on the fact that his name is Gardner, and he always talks about gardening. It's interesting. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Uh, speaking about the screenplay. I I wanted to look it up I and I found a PDF of the screenplay because I was so curious about everything that the president was saying in Ben's eulogy, which is like quiet in the background during most of it because you are just supposed to hear the pallbearers who are, you know, while carrying the casket talking about who to replace the president with. And uh, I just want to read to you the... Uh, the transcript, essentially, of the president's eulogy. I know that Ben said, keep it small and quiet, no eulogies, no fanfares, as a bunch of, like, F-18s fly overhead, and I don't want to go against Ben's wishes, but I thought it would be good, while our close friends carry Ben to his last resting place, to read from his quotes, which I'm sure will have a special meaning to you all, uh, meaning to all of us who are gathered here today. I have no use for those on welfare, no patience whatsoever, but I am to but if I am to be honest with myself, I must admit that they have no use for me either. Okay, interesting quote. I do not regret having political differences with men that I respect. I do regret, however, that our philosophies kept us apart. Okay. It's kind yeah. of these quotes kind of saying nothing. You know, it's like these people are these are this heavily influential man who's saying these things that are kind of just like not they don't have any substance to them. Uh, I was in, I was born into a position of extreme wealth, but I have spent many sleepless nights thinking about extreme poverty. Okay. Uh, this next one I love, uh, when I was a boy, I was told the Lord that the Lord fashioned us from his own image. That's when I decided to manufacture mirrors. (laughs) (laughs) Then he says, life is a state of mind. Uh, the world parts with Rand and Rand parts the world. Fair trade, don't you agree? Security, tranquility, a well-deserved rest, all the aims I have pursued will soon be realized. I, uh, I do not know the feelings of being poor, and that is not to know the feelings of the majority of people in this world. For a man in my position, that is inexcusable. I've lived a lot, trembled a lot, was surrounded by little men who forgot that we enter naked and exit naked, and that no accountant can audit life in our favor. So, you know... I love the mirror one just because it's like that's 
really funny. And I feel like that one is kind of buried more than some of the other ones. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, just huh. just funny. Pun intended, I guess. Oh, it's hey. Uh, well, yeah. I don't know. Because is he, is he being buried or is he being put into that weird, you know, uh, pyramid? Oh, the... Uh... Yeah, with the, the Illuminati um, eye on it. Yeah, no, the yeah, the the right. He's being put into the Illuminati period, uh, pyramid. Another, and, and there we go. Another. Well, I guess yeah, he's not down down to earth. Yeah. Um, I mean, and another. Yeah, there's there there's so much like just metaphor in this, but I love the subtlety. Uh, I love that you're not being hit over the head with it, and it's it's there for you to to pick up on. Yeah. Um, Which I, I feel, coming... I mean, that is so Hal Ashby. And uh, oh, yeah. I, I, as we, as any, any listeners would have heard on our Harold and Maude episode, I'm such a big Hal Ashby fan, uh, specifically Harold and Maude and being there. Uh, there's a lot of his films that I haven't seen. Uh, he does give a nod to a film that he edited, the Thomas crown affair, which uh, has a short clip in the scene where uh uh, Chauncey actually does make a, a move on Eve, mimicking what he sees on TV, uh, as he mm-hmm. is a mimic, much like Peter Sellers, uh, famous mimic. So, uh, Dan, we are already an hour into this, and uh, I know we could keep on going. Any last thoughts before we move on to what we do I, on this I- show? Yeah, I want to come back. To, I, I just want to talk about the moment when he first leaves the house, which looks like this very serene, calm, quiet, like uh, like a wealthy It's very house. quiet, yes. Yeah, and then he walks out of the front door. He's never been outside of the house. He's never been in a car. He's, yeah, never. And the... And, um... And the neighbor, like buildings are dilapidated. There's trash everywhere. The, like the neighborhood has just been neglected and people are sitting out by like trash can fires. And there's graffiti on the wall. Oh, and by the yes. way, the music again. So before I get to the graffiti, I just want to point out the music because the music is freaking brilliant that they they score this section of Chauncey like discovering the world outside his home. With um the uh, also Sprock Zathura uh from two thousand one, but it's like this disco version yeah. of it. So, which is something that that I know you're a fan of when other movies are referenced, and yes. this is a subtle it's, reference. This to is more of a subtle reference, but it's definitely intended there. And I believe Hal yeah. Ashby even said something like, "You want it to feel like he's leaving the planet." Right, and he's discovering this whole this whole new universe, uh, but it's this like he's leaving kind of like the world of the the quiet classical music and entering the this world of like the like disco fied with like the horns and the drums and everything. Right, and in the background you see um, graffiti that I I paused it so that I could write it. So that I could type it down because I was like, "This is Hal Ashby." Yes, uh, and it's it was America something that I and- hadn't I hadn't noticed it until this rewatch too. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, it says America ain't shit because the white man's got a god complex. Yeah, which I th- and I thought I was like, oh, "Okay, all right." So it's like I'm like, "That's cool." He's kind of getting his message out there, but it's just kind of part of the set dressing, and I love that 
that idea is revisited with Louise. Yes. Just kind of calling it out. Yep. Louise is great. Big fan of yeah, Louise. I, and I love it. And this is not a movie necessarily like about. It's not about one singular thing. It's not. It's not a movie that's meant to make a statement about that. That's like specifically intended to make a statement about racism, but it does, and it does it without really missing a step. It's telling it's like the movie it keeps its pace, which and I love the silence. Like we talked about the silence as they're processing things and you see chance as he's processing before he says things. And I love the nuance um, like in Peter Sellers and his performance for someone who could get so wacky and over the top and physical just the. The look in his eye, right, like so physical, but he's so physically reserved in this. However, you see what you need to see going on, uh, going on in 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 his face. Right. And uh, I mean, yeah, man, it's just uh, I mean, I was a bit I was a fan of this movie when I first saw it. And it, it's been years since. But watching it recently just I I feel like I saw so many different levels of it. Like, I feel like you can see this movie and you can kind of see it on one level and appreciate it and enjoy it. But then you can watch this movie and you can see so much more. Well, Dan, also, this movie can mean so many different things depending on when you watch it. And I know that I'm not even the millionth person to you know, draw the parallels between the the previous presidential administration. But, uh, you know, it seemed unfathomable at the time that somebody who just watches TV and doesn't know how to read or write could become president. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and to watch it after the Trump presidency is it makes it an even better movie. And of course they would have had no idea. I mean, Donald Trump wasn't even a thing when this came out and, and look where we are. Yeah, and look where we are now. Yeah, no, he was a thing. He was the thing putting the, um, people of color out on the street. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's in, in New York city. Yeah. He's, uh, <laughs> yeah. he's the person who turned that neighborhood that Chauncey lives in, into, uh, you know, trash on the streets. And, um, and, oh, and sorry, there's one more, just one <laughs> tiny little thing I wanted to point out because there's one more cast member, somebody who I don't think even speaks in this. But when I saw him, I I popped because when Chance meets the Russian ambassador, oh, he yeah. takes, escorts Eve, we have got an Elia Baskin sighting. Elia Baskin. Oh. Playing he is he's like he's the ambassador's like aide okay. and he's just getting drunk. Oh, he's, just, he's doing yes. like drunk Elia Baskin. I mean, yeah, I don't, like at this point, his face is so recognizable. We've t we talked about him, I think, mainly on the Air Force One episode. Right. Yeah. But basically, Man. like anything you've seen where there is where there are like Russian characters. Yeah, he's there. Elia Baskin is That's there. That's so interesting. I didn't even pick up on that. Oh, yeah. No, I got. Yeah, I, I got I wrote it in all caps there. Y yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's just great to to see him to see him in there. Yeah. So, uh, all right, Dan, this is a tough one. Any thoughts about what you would do to bring this movie back all these years later? 
Um, well, you know, I, I, I really had difficulty with this one. I should point out, by the way, that uh, Nathan Lane had approached Stephen Sondheim about creating uh, creating a musical. Ah. Now, Sondheim didn't think it could really work because, like, the character of Chance is it more of, like, an observer. Yeah. And that, and Sondheim thought, and this is according to IMDb Trivia. Got it. So take, a, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, felt that an audience would not accept the character bursting into song. A hundred percent. Yes. I feel like there are ways. I feel like there could be ways to do it. I don't necessarily feel like it should be done. Yeah. So honestly, I really couldn't think any, any path that I thought of just didn't work. Like, I don't think this, I don't think this works as like a series no, because I, I like the finality of 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 chance at the end that he's that he's kind of like like he is just going off. We don't know to where, but like that's part of the mystery around him. So it's like I don't want to see where he ends up or like I, I don't I I don't want some type of sequel where it's like chance sh- like shows up at some other rich person's house and basically the same thing happens yeah um like you were saying the mystery the mystique about this is part of what yeah. really makes it work right and uh anybody else making this movie I feel would have you know he would have kissed Eve and then he would be cured of his traumas and his mental blocks and he would snap out of it and turn the TV off. Like that's what most other filmmakers would do. And they would explain what happened to him. And I don't know, you know, it's like, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. It's, it's the mystique that makes it work. Look, I, I'm sure that there are some filmmakers who would make, I guess my one, I guess my only suggestion would be a, like a, a remake, but not an American remake. Like I would love to see an adaptation of the Polish novel that this was maybe plagiarized from. That wasn't quite where I was going, but like I was thinking, like someone like a uh, uh, a Bong Joon Ho, um, if I'm pronouncing the name Bong correctly, the, Bong Joon Ho. You know, I'm thinking of Parasite, and I'm thinking of the kind of um, dark humor in that. Like I'm thinking to remake it, but for you know, not just for a diff, like in a different language, but just for a different audience. But even then, I don't know if this works outside of that time setting yeah, like that. Cause you think about TV and TV being such an integral part of this. Yeah. I mean, God, he's like, uh, he and Eve are having this like weird love scene. Like she's trying to seduce him and he's watching Mr. Rogers. Yeah. So it, it it's kind of like, there's that fascination with TV yeah. and also like the unified, like when he's on that late night show, everybody sees it because like that in 1979, there were like, what, like three networks yeah. and you were watching one of those three there, you know, there weren't 
500 channels and streaming services. Well, that's and that's what the producer says to Chauncey before, you know, as he's walking him in, he's saying like, you know, more people are going to watch you tonight than have gone like to see live theater times 40 or whatever it is. I love his response. His response is like, why? Why? (laughs) Which also is another like original like thought, you know, even though it's just asking the question why it's showing interest in something. And yeah. And I love the the reaction is, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and he even get like another scene that I love is like, he's watching himself on TV in the car and he gets bored and turns on like some other, it it looked like, I know it wasn't Andy Kaufman, but it looked like an, like Andy Kaufman. Yeah. I can't remember what it was. An Andy Kaufman bit. I'd love to see a list of all of the, the shows that he watches and, you know, I'm sure there's an analysis beyond belief of like how all of the shows, you know, correlate to what's going on in the scene and what story they tell. Because uh, everything oh, yeah. is intentional with with these types of filmmakers. Yeah, a- absolutely. Absolutely. But um, uh, <laughs> it's kind of perfect. Like, I don't think there's yeah. really anything I would I would change about it. Mm. I think it's kind of perfect. And other than, you know, a filmmaker like a Bong Joon-ho doing this and, and, and creating it and making it for another in another country for a different culture. That's really the only kind of thing I could see working. Like it's the only thing that wouldn't make me like pissed off. If I read, if I read the news, Oh, Bong Joon-ho is making a, you know, Korean remake of being there it probably wouldn't bother me, it, you know, as much as like, oh, Wes Anderson is remaking being there. It's like, okay, great. So Bill Murray's going to be the, the Bill, Bill Murray's going to be Ben and, uh, you know. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum is, is going to be the doctor. and but, Yeah, you know, which he'd be good at that, but I, it's not oh, like I, I mean, want it to happen. No, 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 exactly. Like I would even like that's what I'm saying is like even something like that, which would be of interest to me. And I think, you know, it's like Wes Anderson is one of those directors who I feel like takes some inspiration from the work of Hal Ashby. Yeah. I, I I would I would be angry. I would be upset <laughs> if that was happening. Right. That wouldn't happen. So so that's my that's my take on it. That's that's what I think. So a remake done in a in another country in another language for a different audience would be okay. I don't think it is at all necessary. And I think it also takes away from some of the, like outside of the actual story, some of the, uh, some of the other touches in this movie that give it so much depth and meaning. So John, what's your, what's your plan? I've got two things. One would be a re-release However, that could be done safely, uh, especially in an outdoor theater situation at the Biltmore Estate oh. in uh, Asheville, North oh. Carolina, where the the Rand Mansion was filmed. Um, I think that that would be a really cool way to watch this movie. Uh, the other thing that I was thinking would be for this to become mandatory viewing for anybody running for public office from the like Senate or congressional level and up mandatory viewing, mandatory viewing get them all to wear masks or walk through a metal detector. Uh. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, but it's, I don't know that 
wouldn't happen. I don't know. I I don't think I want to hear what Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks of being there. <laughs> I kind of do. Oh. I would love to hear it. <laughs> I I would love to hear reviews from uh, everybody, everybody in politics, you know, in D.C., you know, about this elected officials. Yeah. I mean, I definitely look, I definitely and I know that this is this is less material for ruined childhoods and more for you know, something like Statue of Limitations. Hey, hey. Um, But just like looking at the Oscar and I know this doesn't quite fit under, you know, this wasn't necessarily, I think, kept out of the Oscars because of any uh, type of of discrimination, really, but. Just kind of in hindsight, looking at the at the nominees, it was not even nominated for Best Picture. No, Peter Sellers was nominated for Best Actor. Melvin Douglas won for uh, Best Supporting. However, he did not attend the awards. Dan, have you heard why? No. He did not attend because he was offended that he was up against a child. The kid from Kramer Oh, Melvin Douglas. Kramer. Right, Justin Henry, who was Justin eight, Henry. eight years yeah. old. Which, yeah. Kramer versus Kramer, you know, otherwise kind of swept the Oscars that year. Uh, but Melvin Douglas... I mean, look, he was also up against Mickey Rooney, so... <laughs> yeah. Let's not... Uh, but yeah, so like, it was not not nominated for, for Best Picture. Um, yeah, Shirley MacLaine was, was not nominated for either Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress. Um, the screenplay was not nominated. <laughs> right. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm like looking at the nominees and I'm thinking like, all right, like what would I get rid of? And I, I haven't seen all of the movies. I think of the best picture nominees, the only one I haven't seen yet is Breaking Away. Uh-huh. I know, shame on me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Apocalypse Now was nominated. All That Jazz was nominated. And yeah. It, Norma you know, Ray, which are all great movies. Yeah. It's it's one of those Kramer years versus where Kramer. it's one of those years where you're just like, oh, yes, I have at the very least heard of all of these movies. You know, there are some years, especially like in the 70s, where you're just like, I have not heard of any of these. <laughs> and, Actually, what's interesting, another Hal Ashby movie that I really want to see is the only Best Picture nominee that was released in 1976 that I haven't seen, Bound for Glory. Oh, okay. Um, His film about uh, singer, songwriter, Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie. Okay. Um, I'm like, this land is your land. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, knowing a little bit about Hal Ashby. Yeah. Uh, and then Best Actor. So Peter Sellers was up. I mean, this is actually really stiff competition. So Dustin Hoffman Dustin won for Hoffman. Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but Jack Lemmon was nominated. Al Pacino. Roy Scheider for all that jazz who prior to uh, who who would probably be my other pick. But I don't know as much as I lo- like love Dustin Hoffman and think he's great in Kramer versus Kramer. I wonder if Peter Sellers. Well, Peter really Sellers does. believes that his that the Oscar chances were ruined by the fact that the uh, the end credits were over a, a blooper reel, which I I don't think that that has any impact on the Oscars. But I do agree that for the re-release, it should be removed. Uh, it should be like just the TV with static, which apparently was what they. Yeah. Like what he wanted. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I do want to mention that, uh, 
being there inspired the title for Wilco's second studio album of the same name, a fantastic album. And uh, there is a an NFL player whose name is Chauncey Gardner. Uh, I believe that it's like Chauncey Gardner Jr., but it's like Chauncey Gardner Jones. Like he took his stepfather, he, like he hyphenated with his like stepfather's last name. Uh, definitely no uh, homage to <laughs> the movie um, as far as I can see. And I was really hoping to find out that Chance the Rapper was named in in homage to being there, but such is not the case. There's a different origin story for Chance the Rapper, who is excellent. I am a big fan of his work. I think he's great. Yeah, yes, Chance the Rapper is great, and uh, that's okay. That if if his name is not a tribute to Chance the Gardener, yes. So Dan, any any thoughts before we talk about what we're doing on the next episode? No, I just hope more people go and check out this movie. And like, give it the time to breathe and to like accept it and, you know, like love it for the where it's vague. Yeah, because it is intentionally because it is vague with a purpose. And I think it is just another example of the balance that that this movie sets where it's just kind of perfectly balanced. Yeah. And if you have thoughts and want to share them with us, you can email us at ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail.com. Uh, all of our socials are in the episode description. There's a link tree. And uh, yeah. So, Dan, what are we doing next? All right. We are going to hop into a magical flying convertible. And time travel back to 1978. Time traveling back is to... The well, uh, <laughs> Grease is the word. And the movie we're doing. Yeah, we're going to uh, do Grease. And, and Grease too. So we're going to do Grease. Uh, yeah. So bust out those dancing shoes, dan- dancing shoes, uh, <laughs> shine up grease lightning and, uh, get ready for some hand drive. These musical fun. We're going to, I was about to do the hand drive no, as though anyone could don't see. Do the hand drive. Um, but yes, yeah. absolutely. Grease. Well, Dan, as you walk the streets of DC for the very first time, I wish you a truly good journey. Good journey. Someday I'm gonna live in your house up on the hill And when your skinhead neighbor goes missing I'll plant a garden in the yard